Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Well, good to see you this morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Aren't we blessed to have such a talented worship team? And not only talented, but it's about their heart for God and heart for worship. Yeah, let's give it up for them for a second. I... I am so thankful the Lord has brought to us not just musicians, but worship leaders. And uh, these guys serve the Lord, give their talents to the Lord, and, and we're blessed every week uh, to have such a great worship team, and we appreciate what you guys do. I'm Brian Wiggins. I'm the lead pastor here, and welcome to River of Life. If you're a guest here, we are, uh, want to extend a warm welcome to you and are glad that you chose to join us this morning. Last week was Easter Sunday. Good Sunday. Great to worship with you. Uh, God was working, and uh, we had a number of people who gave their life to Christ last week, and uh, that was extremely exciting. Yeah, and uh, God is so good. You preach the gospel, and the Spirit is working, guys. There's no, no need for us to ever be ashamed of the gospel. He works, and uh, he does it every time. If that was you, if you're one of those folks who gave your life to Christ, or you were wandering, and you came back to the Lord last week, and you said you wanted to walk with him again, I just encourage you, remember that it's not, what I said last week is true. It is not about now a list of things to do. It's about developing a relationship with Jesus. And in that, he will begin to change you. He'll wash you. He'll transform you you and he does his work but it's about getting to know him the book of john is a great book to be in uh to be in the word but i hope you join us here and you're a part of things because we want to help you in that journey we're in the same place we're just learning to grow in christ also and develop that relationship with him and so continue to be a part of that i gotta let you know too in kids ministry there was a young girl who gave her life to christ last week and that's exciting too and uh yeah the lord the Lord is so good. He's blessed our kids' ministry, and we are a church that wants to go to great lengths to see kids reach with the gospel and kids mature in Christ. And uh, we're seeing that happening as that next generation comes up. We have something on the radar that is an A1 priority. Hear this from my mouth. This is an A1 priority, and it's our Vacation Bible School. It's been some years since we've done one, and uh, we are excited about what the Lord is doing with Vacation Bible School, or VBS, you might hear us say. And uh, we we need your help in order to do it. It takes a whole big group of volunteers doing all kinds of different roles. You can do a bunch of different things. I know a lot of people who came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior through a vacation Bible school. And uh, it's an important key thing of, of ministry as we reach out to kids. And uh, I hope that you'll be a part of it. In a former church that I was in, people were so excited about vacation Bible school that there were people who take time off of work to be there. And uh, ours is going to be in July. It'll be in the mornings. You might be able to take time off of work. You might not be able to, but that's okay because you could do different jobs. We need people to help in the pre-planning and all the work that goes in ahead of time. We need prayer warriors. We need people who will invite and be active in getting these neighborhoods around us here and uh, in engaging our kids from River of Life. We need teachers. I mean, we need all types of people. So even if you can only help one day, whatever it might be, we want you to be able to be a part of it. And so that's coming up in, uh, in just a couple of months. Out in the lobby today, there's uh, some folks that would love to help you uh, find out any more information or answer questions that you have.
And uh, you can sign up there to say, I want to help in a certain way. And they can help uh, direct you in that. So out the doors and to your right, you'll find that table set up and uh, meet them after this service. We need to uh, honor somebody today. Our man, our youth pastor, Taylor Spielman. Are you in here, Taylor? Let's embarrass him really well here. He graduated yesterday. And he's back today. He was out in Portland, graduated from Western Seminary. There he is in the back, mad at me right now, but I don't care. He's, he uh, graduated yesterday, big accomplishment, graduating from seminary and finishing off that degree. And uh, we're proud of him and proud of God's work in his life and how uh, the Lord has brought him to that point. Um, last thing, I know I'm, I'm hitting you with all kinds of stuff. After this service, we're going to have what we're calling a meet and greet. This is different than our iConnect coffee. iConnect coffee, we have something to say to you. At this, we're just wanting to meet you. Here's what we've come to realize. As River of Life has grown, there's a lot of people that I don't know and the rest of our staff doesn't know. And we haven't had a chance to say hi to you, even get your names or, or connect with you. Even if you've been here a year, two years, five years, it doesn't matter. Come back and meet us if you haven't had a chance to meet our pastoral staff and our other staff who will be back. Back there, and uh, it's down in the youth lounge. Follow the signs. You're basically going to go all the way down the hallway and to the right, and you'll find it down there. But after this service, come join us, even just for a few moments, and uh, meet us in that room. Well, let's bow our heads one more time and ask the Lord to uh, help us this morning as we dig into His Word and speak to us. Father, this morning as we walk in here, we I am aware that we're coming from a lot of different places throughout this past week. Some have very deeply and intimately been walking with you. Others, I bet, have had very little thought of you. But that doesn't matter this morning because you call us to come to you with arms wide open. There's just an invitation extended to us. And as we open up the words that you say to us this morning, we want to ask for you to draw us into yourself, that Jesus would would invite us to himself and we would go towards you. So, Lord, would you speak to us today? I just pray for my voice, Lord, give it enough strength for these next couple of moments and uh, give me voice to speak your word and what you put on my heart. We want you, Lord. We want your help today in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you hear my voice start to fade, I've got one request. Just pray for it, okay? Pray that God gives me enough to, for this morning. I'm just preaching on faith this morning. And I'll have my water up here. So a couple of things, promises. Let's talk about promises for just a moment. Have you made some promises in life? Have you been good on them? Raise your hand if you've ever made a promise. You better all get your hand in the air. Have you made a promise in life? All of us have. We've had promises made to us. And sometimes those promises get broken, right? So when somebody says, I promise you whatever, we're kind of leery of that. Really? You promise? Are you sure it'll come through? We make promises all the time. It might be a promise or a promise that has been made to you. Maybe somebody promised you, I'll be at your game this week. Maybe they promised to you, I will be faithful to you in life. Maybe somebody's promised to you something about, once you accomplish this, you will get a pay raise afterwards. People make promises to us and we're nervous about them. Here's the thing with promises. They're always attached to, do I trust the person who's saying it to me? They're almost always attached to waiting. Many of the promises that are made to us, we have to wait for, and we don't necessarily see it to come to fruition right in that moment. But there are promises made to us that are promises that are, just come get it now. I promise you can have it. Just come get it now, and they're ready for us in the moment. 
Well, this morning in the text that we're going to look at, we're going to be talking about promises and the great promises that we have in Christ. When a person finds salvation in Jesus Christ, we enter into a life attached to all kinds of promises that God has made to us. A life of abundance, a life of joy. But oftentimes, we know it takes time. Most of the time, it takes waiting to actually see those come to fruition. Okay, so in order to get us there, we're going to head into this exciting passage of Scripture in Joshua Chapter 18 is where I'd like you to go. We're going to conquer Joshua chapters 13 through 21. We're going to plunk down right now in the middle of that large section of Scripture. This is the section that a bunch of you have come to me and said, Oh, I can't wait to see what you do with this. Because it's a tough one. I'll show you why. Go to Joshua chapter 18. I'm going to start reading to you to give you a sample of what this is like. Chapter 18, verse 11. Ready? Ready? Don't get too comfortable because you're going to go to sleep. Stay awake. Ready? I'm only going to read a few verses. The lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to the clans, came up, and the territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. On the north side of their boundary began at the Jordan. Then the boundary goes up to the shoulder north of Jericho. Then up through the hill country westward, and it ends at the wilderness of Beth Avon. And then there are boundary, the boundary passes along southward in the direction of Luz to the shoulder of Luz, that is Bethel. Then the boundary goes down to, and on and on and on it goes. You didn't fall asleep, did you? Okay, if you were a land surveyor, which I don't know if we have any in our church or not, if you're a land surveyor, you started salivating when I started reading that. You're like, wow, this is so interesting. The rest of us are going, oh Lord, what in the world do you have for us in this today? Well, as I come through this, I believe that the Lord has given me something to say to us today, something to discover in this passage of scripture, because every piece of scripture is important and it's useful. God doesn't waste the valuable real estate of Scripture, of the few pages that we have. It's all beneficial to us. We're going to discover some things today that will help us in that. Two weeks ago today, I accidentally invented my own word. And that word is truggets. We're going to look for some truggets. And if you remember, what I did is I accidentally blended nuggets of truth and it came out as truggets. So we're going to use that. I think you can even take notes on it because I've got a screen. Make sure you get this written down. But after first service, somebody sent me uh, a text um, that said it's actually already a word. And they sent me a text from Urban Dictionary. I was afraid to click on it because I was afraid it was going to light up my uh, covenant eyes. But I clicked on it. It says this, a trugget is actually also, and this is like we have our own definition. They can, Urban Dictionary can have theirs. It is a large clump of ice, mud, or snow that forms on large truck mud flaps and frames and ends up falling on the road. We've seen those, right? You kick them off of your car. Those, those are truggets also, but those don't matter. We're not going to worry about those. Okay, I'm going to see if I can update Urban Dictionary. All right, let me see if I can give you an overview also of chapters 13 through 21. So the best way I think we can walk into this is get an overview, and then we're going to pull out some of those truggets from that. Okay, so let's look at verse, uh, these, these, the section of Scripture. Chapter 13 begins where we have been all the way up to this point. So Israel's crossed the Jordan. They've conquered all now. They've gone south. They've gone north. And so these two military campaigns are done, and the land is essentially theirs to move into at this point. 
They can go in. They can have it. And that's where we pick it up. Chapter 13 starts what is known as like the third major part of the section, I mean, of the, of the book of, of Joshua. Here it's all about the division of the land. And some people have just skipped over this section. But here's what goes on. If you look in that chapter 13, and it starts this way in verse 1. Now Joshua was old and he was advanced in years. It's also on the screen. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. Anybody had the Lord say that to you? But there remains yet very much land to possess. Verse 6, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel, only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half of the tribe of Manasseh. So out of 12 tribes of Israel, a couple are on the the east side. The rest of them are going to be on the west side of the Jordan, which is really the promised land. And after this bloody re, uh, account of, of brutality, of warfare, all of that comes to a close. We enter this ever-exciting section about the distribution of land and these surveys. If we don't look at this passage through the eyes of an Israelite, though, we're going to miss some major important things. We could easily just run through it. Practically, Joshua records how the spoils of war are being divided up among all the different areas there. These nine and a half tribes that receive their inheritance. The Lord tells Joshua that he's getting old and that there's more land to occupy before it's completely possessed. That the Lord would fight for them and he would give it to them. But here's what's going to go on. Before they were fighting together as a group. Now they're going to inherit the land and there's still a few people to drive out like the Canaanites. But individual tribes would take on small campaigns to finish off the work of occupying that land. That's oftentimes the hard work of faith and obedience. Because God calls us to obedience and to step out in faith and obedience. But a lot of times it's that end part that's the most difficult. And that was difficult for Israel when it came to this final step. And as we look at this text, we have to realize something about it. That comfort often is the enemy of faith and obedience. That once we get the initial part, we grow comfortable. Once we've taken that first step of faith, we oftentimes grow comfortable. But finishing is the hard part. And comfort can sit as an enemy to us taking that last step of obedience with the Lord. The last verse of chapter 13 is verse 33, and it's of particular interest to us to note now because we're going to come back to it later. It's talking about the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi is the priestly tribe, the ones that would serve throughout Israel as priests and serve the people. But there's something about them that Israel and you and I need to remember. And it's this. Israel might get the land, but the land is nothing more than dirt. Okay, the land is simply dirt. And while it does represent the promise of God being kept, the Lord himself, apart from the land, is actually the true prize. Look at verse 33. But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. Their inheritance would be God himself. We'll come back to that later on here. Chapter 14, the focus is on an 85-year-old man named Caleb. He was one of the original 12 spies that looked at the land, came back. Out of these 12 spies, only two, Caleb and Joshua, said, God is with us. These people, it's impossible for us to win this. 
And we could do it though, because God is with us. The other 10, their hearts melted in fear. They convinced the people, they pulled back and a generation passes. Now at least 45 years has passed. And now Caleb is 85 years old. Any people in their 80s in here, in their mid 80s? First service had a few. Okay, let's do a little thing to compare. Okay, we have a couple in here. I'm 42. If you're 85, to give you a little bit of an example, imagine Joshua at my age went in and he looked at the land and had faith. And Moses had promised to him that there would be a land given to him. You're 85. And now, finally, that promise is happening. So in chapter 14, as you look at that, verse 8 Caleb is talking to Joshua and he says, but my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord, my God. And Moses swore on that day saying, surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever because you have wholly followed the Lord, my God. So he finally gets it. Chapter 15, it's the longest chapter in all of Joshua. And if you have a Bible, keep following me with this, following with me in this. But I'm going to summarize this long chapter in Joshua with a really short part. Ready? Chapter 15, verse 12. This is the boundary around the people. That's all you need to know. Okay, it's a boundary. It describes this boundary. It's a list of names and places. And it describes that. And so it goes into detail about it. And there's a brief record in it about Caleb's victory over three sons of Anak. Chapter 16 and 17, flip over to those. These next two chapters record the allotments given to Manasseh and Ephraim. And they both want more land, though, after their allotments have been given. So they go to Joshua and they ask for that. But it shows something about them. It shows a discontentment in their heart with what they've been given. They want more. So notice the text uh, declares about them that... They did not drive out the Canaanites. But it goes on and, it's, and it describes that. This failure to finish the job of what remained surfaces something. That the promise is not yet fully complete. It's the sense of living in the kingdom where it's the here but not yet. We experience it but not complete yet. And it's the same type of living that we have. It's here, but not quite yet. The complete fulfillment has not yet been seen until Christ returns in glory for the second time. So now we're really trucking along. We're making progress. You're going, this is going to be a really short sermon. Uh, Hold on. Okay, chapters 18 and 19, they're packed with details. And the land is, is proportioned out to the next seven tribes, the remaining seven tribes. Look at chapter 18, verses 8, and t- 8 through 10. So the men arose and they went. And Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, go up and down in the land and write a description and then return to me. In other words, go out and survey it. Draw some maps. Come back to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and they passed up and down the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua at, at, to the camp at Shiloh and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. So chapters 18 and 19 just describe that dividing out. And finally, in our summary of all these chapters is chapters 20 and 21 and something different here. After all the spoils of war have been divided out, the Lord, Joshua follows through on something the Lord had commanded to Moses. 
And that was to set aside special cities. And these cities would be used, some of them, cities of refuge, for both the justice of criminals and the provision of priests. So in some places, criminals would be sent. In other places, priests would live. And so we see that in these chapters. Let's look at some of the verses about that. Chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, appoint cities of refuge. We hear that today in politics, don't we? That term came from here, cities of refuge, which I spoke to you through Moses. That the manslayer, or somebody who's murdered someone else, like manslaughter, unintentional, who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Skipping forward to chapter 21, verse 3. And by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. And so there were to be these spots set aside. And so the best way I knew to get into the text here today was to give you an overview of all these chapters. And you should thank your lucky stars that I didn't preach on each one of these chapters. There's good stuff in them, but we're going to look at them as a whole. But there's a couple of things of why the Lord would put it here. I mean, why take up all these chapters to say this? And we're going to discover some of those things. And I believe that the Lord has given me a couple of insights into it that I want to share with you. One of them is this, is that God is a God of order. Have you ever found that interesting? God is a God of order. There were a couple of boys uh, that were being raised in a home that were 8 and 10 years old. And these boys were really mischievous. These boys constantly got in trouble. And anytime there was something going on in town, in this small town that they lived in, the parents would start looking for the boys because most of the time they were involved in some way in that mischievous uh, activity. And so one day the mom had heard that there was a pastor in town who was good with boys and helping boys get straightened out. And she thought, well, here's what I need to do is get him an appointment and send him in to see the pastor. It's not the best parenting technique, but she did it. And so the eight-year-old had the morning appointment. The 10-year-old boy was going to meet with the pastor in the afternoon. The eight-year-old boy goes in and he sits down across from the pastor. The pastor knows a little bit of his history and he just asks this question of the boy. Where is God? eyes just get really big and he can't believe what the pastor's asking him and but he doesn't say anything and a second time the pastor says to him with a little more sternness in his voice where's god and the boy even more so his eyes get even bigger and his jaw drops open he can't believe what's going on that the pastor's asking him this and the third time the pastor's like what is this kid he won't talk to me and he so he says where's god And the boy just gets up and wide-eyed and he just runs out of the room and he goes away and he goes home and he goes in his closet, slams the door and his 10-year-old brother finds him there. He says, what happened? He's scared to death, right? And the younger brother who's gasping for breath says, we're in big trouble this time, dude. God is missing and they think we did it. When we look around our world, a lot of times we'll think and we'll observe that there's a lot of chaos, right? And we ask the question, where is God? Because if God isn't in the mix, I mean, where is he? No wonder there would be chaos around us. And the truth is that there has been chaos in our world ever since Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit. It's a part of our world. But the other truth is this, is that God brings order into chaos, why do I say that? Well, there's a verse that directly says that. 1 Corinthians 14, says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. 
He's a God of, of order and peace. And when we see what happened in this situation, as the Israelites were brought into the promised land, Joshua bringing them in, this division of the land brings an order. What do I mean by that? Well, for one, governance could happen. They didn't have mass communication like we had. It provided lines and borders and clarity to other nations. It provided even the economy to work and to function. It provided for families to function and have a cohesion. There were ways that it just worked that brought order to Israel. And it's as simple as that. I mean, it it just brought some order to the way that they could work. But when you look around, we find God bringing order to things all the time. In the Trinity, God is three distinct persons in one. He is one God, but he has different roles throughout the Trinity and different functions in that. You see it in creation. Colossians 1 tells us this, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And for him, and listen to this, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God brings order even to the created order. If you took God out of the picture right now, things would completely fall apart because he holds all things together. You look at it in authorities that even is completely out of scripture, all this idea of authorities that we have in our world. And authority is everywhere, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yes, authorities can become corrupt, but the idea of authority structure is a good thing. In the military, how far would we get if a soldier who was under a commanding officer could question his orders, say, in the middle of a battle? It'd be terrible, right? We wouldn't win. No one could make progress. Authority is a good thing. Authority comes throughout scripture and we see it listed numerous times. You see authority talked about in in the home and a structure in the home, a structure in society and the way that it plays out in society. Structure that could be filtered down into schools and into churches and into denominations. There's a reason why things work when there's authority. Because structure and order makes sense. You see it biblically in the building of the tabernacle. There were different people with different, different uh, jobs to do within that. And so in the building of the tabernacle that we've already talked about a bit in, in this uh, series. We see it in the structure of the church. Leadership and order brought in where there could be conflicting relationships. We see it in knowing what we believe. That's order. We see it even in the expression of spiritual gifts. Let me highlight one particular spiritual gift. And maybe you know somebody who has this gift, the gift of administration. Do you know anybody with the gift of administration? We love these people around here because they help us get done what needs to get done. There are people who can, who can, I mean, they'll rip out spreadsheets just like that. They'll do stuff that has to, they'll order people. They'll put things together in groups. They take care of, of it. And they are really the ones who help us get the ball moved down the field. People with the gift of administration, maybe just a couple of them to point out. Margo, I think you have the gift of administration. I don't know if you've ever taken a spiritual gift inventory, but you are great at this type of stuff. Um, you see it in Julie, I believe, uh, in the office. Putting things together. That gift is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. But it's a term that means shipmaster or captain of the ship. They literally steer and drive the ship, getting it precisely to where it needs to go with precision in that. 
Whereas the leader might just be like, we just need to get over there. The administrator says, yeah, but it's important that we hit and come up to the dock and get to the right spot. They help us do the right things and do it with order. You know, some people have assumed before that if the spirit is working, the only way he's going to work is in spontaneity. And there's a certain amount of truth where the spirit is spontaneous and we need to hold things loosely to allow him to direct and guide things. But I laugh when people say that because I sit in my office and the spirit of God meets me as I'm putting order to sermons so often when I'm studying, when I'm with him. And when I almost every time when that is what's going on as I'm working on a particular part of a message, when I preach it, the spirit is working here too. There's order to that. And God works in order, and it's a good thing. He also works in spontaneity, but order is a good thing. Jesus was the ultimate order maker. He brought order out of the chaos, the unpeace that we had with God. When we were once enemies of the cross, and if you're outside of Christ, you are an enemy of the cross. And it brings disorder to your life. The reason why you feel the way you do when you don't have Christ in it is because there's disorder in it. But Christ died to bring order as he brought peace into your life. So Christ is the ultimate peacemaker. Another just quick thing that we see in here that's tied into this is the idea of the unity of God's people that shows up. Why does the author spend nine chapters explaining all this division of the land? I mean, who wants to read it? But here's what's going on in it is that there's this There's this description of the unity of God's people throughout the book of Joshua. You think of these different ways it was displayed as the eastern tribes who had already settled, fought with their brothers and sisters to take the land and and do that with them. We see unity in the way that the land was distributed and how they worked together in that. We see unity in the sense that that here the promises of, of God are fulfilled to the Levites. And they're going to receive their cities of refuge just as God had promised to them. And so all of this is laid out in a way that helps us see the unity of God's people as they went in. And because they were united, think about this. They were actually able to complete the mission. Had they divided halfway through, do you think they would have finished I don't think so, because a house divided can't stand, right? We know that. We've seen it happen. As soon as we become divided, they stayed mission central. They knew exactly what to do because they were united. And things just worked. Their leaders who were servants of the people were able to lead well. People followed those servant leaders and served each other. And it came together in a beautiful way. And so things just worked. But here's the biggie, is that it really displayed God's glory. The reputation of God went out as God's people moved forward. God was able to display his power, but it also displayed his glory. And that went out and people heard about Yahweh. The exact same thing is true in the church today. Unity displays all kinds of different things. Unity about being mission central and knowing exactly the mission of the church. The mission of of the church is absolutely clear. It's to join God in his mission of reconciling God and man. That should be true of any church. And anything that takes us off target is not actually mission essential. It's not that important. We need to stay focused on that exact thing. It's about the reconciliation of God and man. And so that's something true for the church. Things just work better in church when we work together in unity. It's 
It's just that relationships aren't coming apart at the seams when we're working in unity. Because it's working the way it's supposed to. Leaders are able to lead. People are able to serve. And instead of saying, I want to get my way, we value unity over that. I value you more than I value my own opinion. And so in that, the body works together. We do conflict resolution well. We make local church life a priority in our life. And it just works. But the last thing is so tied to the same as with Israel is it displays God's glory. His glory is manifest when you and I work together. Look around for just a second. Please do. Look around at people around you. Unity matters to God. That you work with the people that are around you. That you are in harmony with them. That you are one with them in Christ. Different, but in harmony in Christ. Jesus actually prayed for you and I about this. And when Jesus spends his time praying for something for us, I really want to know what it is. What did he care about? John chapter 17 records a line of that. And it says this, the glory that, and this is Jesus talking, and he's talking about it this way. The glory that you have given me, that the father has given to him as Jesus, I have given to them, that's you and I, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is saying the father has given him glory. But here's the thing. He's given us his glory to reflect back in the way that we display unity. In the way we love one another. In the way we care for one another. In the way we serve together and serve each other. Those are the things that make up unity. And you think about the amazing display of this to the world. Our biggest testimony is how we function together. This chapter in Joshua, these chapters in Joshua display that unity. One last thing, and this I'm so excited about, is the fulfillment of God's promises. We find promises all throughout the Bible. In fact, do you realize there are 8,810 promises in the Bible? Anybody list those? (laughs) There's a lot of promises. A big chunk of those are in the Old Testament, but the New Testament has 1,104 of them for us. God promises us all kinds of things. If you're a follower of Jesus, those are your promises. Vance Havner, though, said about it, we're sitting on the premises. In other words, we're sitting in church listening to them, which is more, uh, sorry, when we ought to be standing on the promises. Instead of sitting in church hearing about them, we ought to be standing on them and taking steps boldly out towards them. I mean, promises, think about them. For comfort, for great rewards in heaven, for blessing in the midst of persecution, a promise that Christ will build his church. All kinds of promises throughout scripture. But in the Old Testament, there was a huge one. And this big promise was that he would give Israel a home. In other words, they would have a land that would be their own. It was a promise made to Abraham many years beforehand. A promise that would finally take this nation that was a nomadic nation. How many of you want to live in a camper or a tent for the rest of your life? And some of you are like, yeah, please give it to me. I saw at least one hand go up. But it's not really a long-term way to live, right? I bet you get tired of it after a couple of years. Some of you are like, try me. But it's not really a way for a nation to be a nation, is it? To be nomadic and move like that, God had given them a promise. And finally, it comes. We've gone through up to chapter 21, but do you know what the last verses of chapter 21 say? They go like this, starting in verse 43. 
So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give them and their ancestors. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. Just as he had sworn to their ancestors. And not one of their enemies withstood them. And the Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. This land of the Old Testament that shows up so many times, this promise of land is the fulfillment of God's promise. That he's trustworthy. That he will come through. They have the law now. And now they have the land And like verse 44 says, they finally had what? Because they were in the land. What is it? They had rest. They could finally rest because they had the land. They had the fulfillment of the promise. He always comes through on his promises. Unlike any person, he can always come through. But is land all that God wants for his people? I mean, is that what all he wants for you? I mean, if he has... I just got this small little lot in Fruta and I haven't even paid it off. There's a lot of need for land, right? If that's all there is, is there something deeper that would be promised to his people? Well, there is. And the, the Levites were a clue into this. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, there's this concept that there's a building, that there would be an abundance, that there was essentially more, that the land wasn't all there was. And we have to look at that very carefully and and wrestle with that. The Levites were a clue into this. This tribe who was dedicated to the service of the Lord and to the people, you might have noticed about them something earlier. The Levites didn't get a section of land, right? They had cities to live in and a place to go. They would be dependent on, on their provision just from the care of other people. But did they get shafted by God? I mean, did he just like leave them out and say, sorry, guys? Well, we saw that verse in chapter 13, verse 33, that puts it this way, that their inheritance is the Lord himself. They would serve as as an example of something very important for you and I and for the rest of Israel to see that Yahweh himself is a better reward than the gifts. It was better for them than the rest of the people that had all the land. And we would have to ask ourselves the question of this. Do we treasure God's gifts more than the Lord himself? Do I want him more than I want just the gifts that I might get from him? And the land that symbolized finally legitimacy and it finally was rest and showed God's fulfillment. It was just the start to more that was to come. Because there was a greater treasure, a greater promise that was to come. But there would be waiting because all throughout from this moment on is this building promise of a Messiah who would come. And for nearly 1,450 years, Israel would wait from the time they entered the land to this Messiah who would come. Jesus is his name. And in the new Testament, the land promise of the old Testament is finally fulfilled. That's why Paul said what we sang this morning, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. In other words, they're a guarantee in Christ. They're fulfilled in Christ. We can sing that he is going to come through on his end. And our end is the latter half of that verse. And it goes like this. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. 
we are guaranteed his promises will come through. And we can say amen. In other words, when I say amen, what that means is this, is that I agree. We agree. And we literally in the sense that stepping out in faith, this is the response action to that. Christ fulfills all of the promises of God. And so if that seems strange to you, listen to some of this though. For a Christian to dwell in the land of, of promise is a figure or it's a shadow of the blessings of living by faith in Christ. Because in peace, and in, we can live leaving the wilderness behind us. The wilderness that was happened before Joshua came on the scene, that wilderness time pictures the progressive journey of the maturing of a believer. It's this journey of being brought to the place where the fulfillment finally happens. Paul talked about this, where one day the nation would be a blessing to all. And Paul said, though, about the law, about the law that they had, that it would be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. See, under the Mosaic law, the Israelites entered the promised land and they conquered it. And they eventually lost that land and were taken into captivity. That land represented what? It represented rest. And the fulfillment of all of God's promises, which would bring them rest. But the author of Hebrews said about the law that a shadow of good, it was just a shadow of good things to come. And this is the true land promise. It is this, is that Christ would come and he would be what we receive. See, the, the law is only a shadow. Hebrews 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near in relationship. The land is the same way as the law, where the land represented just a shadow. The, or, sorry, the law represented just a shadow of what was to come. The land represented just a shadow of what was to come and that we would be fulfilled in Christ and we would ultimately find our rest in Christ, in the perfection of Christ. He is our ultimate rest. Peace with God and burdens lifted. I want to point us to one final promise that brings us all home. It's a promise of Jesus that I hope you grab onto today. It's a promise that I think we need to hear often. And it's a promise that I hope you live by and you stand upon. Jesus said this promise to us. Listen to it. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said that for you. Jesus said that to you as a follower of Jesus. That's a promise you can live on. It's a promise that points to your past, your present and your future. In your past in this way, it's finally you can stop looking to the past, the shame and the guilt and the burden you carry about your past. Jesus says he will give you rest in the sense that only Jesus can cut the ties of that. Only Jesus through his death and through his resurrection can cut the ties of your past. And finally, you can be at peace with God and peace in your life. It's a peace in the present tense that today you can experience that. He's not talking about, yeah, you just need a nap this afternoon or you just need to get a good sleep tonight. It's a rest that goes so much deeper than that. 
Does anybody need a deeper rest? Are you weary from suffering or trial you're walking through? Are you weary because of the confusion of life? Are you weary because of relationships or something that's going on? Jesus says as a promise that he will give us rest. When you are tired, when you are weary in life, where are you turning? Is there a bottle you turn to? Is TV what you turn to to get your rest? Is there a person that you're turning to? Is there a a screen that you're turning to to try to have something in front of you to give you some rest? I just need to have some Netflix. Jesus said he would give you rest. Netflix is a cheap substitute. And I'm not trying to just rip on Netflix, but you understand what I'm saying? When some of you may verify this if you've lived in this part of the country, but the state drink in Minnesota could be called Mountain Dew. Okay. They are so addicted to Mountain Dew there. I knew guys who down like 12 of those a day. I don't know how they're alive. So one day we were out there helping uh, a family and we're serving in their yard. And I was really thirsty, but instead of water out came some Mountain Dew. And I was like, all right, that'll do for now. And I guzzled down a cold Mountain Dew, just trying to, you know, get some fluid into me. And it felt good at first, a little sugar rush and quenched the initial thirst. But as I got working, my mouth quickly turned to cotton. And then a few minutes later, because I was working aerobically and hard, I started to get a side ache. And then after not much longer, the sugar crash came and boom, and I was out of energy. It really didn't fulfill. It's not water. It wasn't what I needed. We need Christ's living water. We need the rest that he can offer. Where do you turn when you're tired and weary? In the present tense, do you go to Christ first before the other stuff? You don't need the other stuff. You need him. But it's also future tense. That Christ ultimately will be our rest. Followers of Jesus, listen to this. He will be your ultimate rest. And though it's here but not yet, listen to this. Remember about him. He will dwell with his people. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Anybody ready for that? I know I am. I want that so badly. I want that rest. But until then, I wait. I wait and I work and I'm his servant and I follow him. And he provides rest for me in the present tense. I don't know where you're at in life. The land in the Old Testament represented rest. But if you're a New Testament believer like we are, Jesus is your rest. And Jesus is the only place you're going to find rest. You ready to go get it? Jesus says, I love the simple words, just come to me. A picture like a, a son running up to his dad. Just come up to me and I'll give you rest for your weary soul. Let's bow our heads. You want rest? Just come to him right now and say, God, I, I need you to be my fulfillment. I want you to be my everything, my all in all. Maybe you need to just run up in your Abba Father's lap and get that from him. Jesus, thank you that you offer rest to us. You didn't say this world would be easy. Following you wouldn't be simple and easy, but there would be trials that come along with that. And we know the pain and the bitterness of life because sin is still in this world. But Lord, we want to be walking and journeying with you and in your grace as we do that, as we, as we love you and as we live in the present tense. One day you'll give us all that we need we look for that. We long for it. 
But Jesus, you are the ultimate fulfillment of all these promises from the Old Testament. Thank you that you are that. Thank you that you've given us the more and the abundant. God, give us more and abundant life in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.